But today we'll be in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. And if you remember, a shift has taken place from uh, the first really eight chapters of Romans, where now Paul is focusing on something new in uh, 9 through 11. Um, Remember, Paul is writing to two particular groups of people who now find themselves in a single group. Two groups of people that used to be separated now have come to faith in Jesus and are beginning to meet with each other on Sundays. It's the early church in Rome. Some people Jewish, meaning they came up in a very religious upbringing that might be familiar to some of us, very moralistic, anchored in the Old Testament scriptures, longing and waiting for a Messiah, and others a myriad of different spiritual influences uh, that they would have had from a pretty progressive and pluralistic kind of society there in first century Rome that would be very familiar to many of us who live in a city like Chicago, uh, constantly interacting with different worldviews and ideas. And so Paul is writing to them as a whole, but every now and then he draws a particular group out. And here in uh, Romans 9 through 11, he's particularly focused on his Jewish readers. And he is writing to them about the implications of the gospel for them as a Jewish people. Those of whom Paul has just said, if you remember in verses 1 through 5, had this special attention from God. All of these things happened in and through the Jewish people, and yet they did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They, they rejected him as the Messiah. So Paul is writing about those implications, being a Jewish people with special attention, and yet they are not saved. Not all of them are saved. So they have this special experience of attention from God, but not salvation. So Paul starts this section with a lot of emotion. You remember? A lot of times Paul gets accused of just being like really heady and theological. Here we we can sense his emotion in verses one through five, that he is grieved, that he is overwhelmed with the prospect of his Jewish sisters and brothers not being in the church, not being redeemed, not, not believing in Jesus. You see, he was Jewish and he's grieved by what's taking place. And yet in the middle of that, now he faces a theological objection. So if you remember, Paul has been doing this a lot. He's like, I know what you're thinking, right? And so he goes ahead and answers a question that he knows a lot of people, his first century readers would have been asking, which is really helpful because it's probably the same questions that you and I would ask. And so the fact that, that Jews are outside of the new covenant, that they could have missed the Messiah, that they could be disconnected from the God of the Bible, seems to betray things that they would have learned about the God of the Old Testament or the God of Israel. Consider Leviticus chapter 26. It says, and I, God says, I will uh, walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Elsewhere, there's this promise of fidelity and of forever and of no matter what kind of language that God bestows upon seemingly Israel, seemingly his people. And so Paul starts there with this question. Here's the question that we need to consider today, the one I think that Paul is answering kind of subterraneously beneath the the layer of this text. Here's the question. If God said, I will be your God and you will be my people, but not all Jews are saved, has God failed? So if God says things like that in Leviticus chapter 26 and all the way through the Old Testament and the people of God, Israel, are constantly receiving this message, I will be your God and you will be my people, but some of those Jewish people, now Paul is saying, are not saved. The question is, has God failed? Has God failed to be true to his word? Has he failed to be true to his promises? Has he failed to be true to his people? 
here's how Paul begins to answer this question. Because really, you know Paul, like any preacher, he's pretty long-winded and he never just answers it quickly. So he's going to take three chapters to answer that, essentially. And we get the beginning of his answer here in Romans chapter 9, verse 6 and 13. reads this way. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So in the middle of all of these different narratives and, and people within these different families in ancient uh, Israel, and really the beginnings of the nation and the people of Israel, the question that we get to keep in mind is, has God failed? And in short, let's not bury the lead, the answer is no. God has not failed. Paul is really explicit about that. God never fails. Now, even though Paul's answer may seem simple and clear, understanding why God never fails is really critical because you and I face this perplexity every week. Believing, thinking, or feeling like God has failed. Allowing, therefore, this truth to settle in your souls actually is really vital for our spiritual formation. Because a lot of times, I know even growing up in the church, you go, asking a question seems dumb. Like, has God never failed? Of course he hasn't. And we like have the right answer. And we have this posture of like, I know what what is true about that or the answer to that question, right? But do our souls really, are they really anchored in it? Is my heart really settled in this idea that God actually never fails? That nothing is outside of his purposes? See, there's a difference between knowing and knowing when it comes to the scriptures, knowing something intellectually and knowing something deep within my personhood. And my life is actually built on that reality. See, I I think this is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about this promise that God made and why he has not failed to fulfill it, despite what some of his readers may be feeling and thinking. And it's good for us to consider this because we have a lot of feelings and thoughts about what God has promised, don't we? a lot of feelings and thoughts about what the scriptures claim to be true or will be true. So that's what I'd like to talk about today. I'd like to talk about God's promise, what it is, who it's for, and why he made it in the first place. Who this promise is for, what this promise is, and why he made it in the first place. So three things, the nature of God's promise, the people of God's promise, and the purpose of God's promise. So the nature of the people and the purpose. Let's ask for God's help. Father, left to ourselves, we can't figure any of this out. Left to ourselves, we might even be able, we might be able to figure some things out, but not really sure about how to live as a result of them. And so what we are desperate for in this moment is for your Holy Spirit to speak. We are desperate for him to shine brightly through the scriptures, to illuminate the truth and beauty of you, our God so that we would trust in Jesus more right now, that something in our hearts would be affected so deeply by the gospel truth 
that, that sin would be confessed on the spot as we silently before you are wrestling with these things. That fruit would be produced within us, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That weight that we've been carrying all week of shame and guilt and that we're not good enough and we'll never measure up, that that just melts off of us. And the beauty of that yoke that is easy and that burden that is light would come upon us in the form of your righteousness and grace. That's what we need today. That's what I know that's what I need. And so we thank you that when we, we ask for this kind of wisdom, when we ask for this kind of miraculous work, that you're so faithful to do that. So we trust you in this moment. And we trust you because of who you are, because of your love, because of your grace, because of your truth. And we say all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so again, our big question, has God failed? And Paul, in answering this question, is really keen to focus in on this guy named Abraham, someone who he's brought up a lot in Romans. And he does so here again. And so if we're to understand the nature of God's promise, it's really good for us to go back to the place where God originally makes this promise, right? Are you with me? It's sort of basic logic. We want to understand God's promise. Let's go back to where he made this promise. So meet me in Genesis chapter 17. If you're in Romans, flip all the way to the first book of the Bible. And as always, if you got a fake one, just type in Genesis 17 and, you know, I don't know, be pleased with the speed of which you get there. Genesis chapter 17. Um, a lot has taken place when we get to Genesis uh, chapter 17. God has created people. He's created all of the world. All of these families begin to take root. Sin continues to persist. The Tower of Babel, which our kids are learning about today, has been built as a way of sort of reaching up to God. And so we constantly see all of this um, uh, growing more humanity, more people. God scatters the people into these various different people groups and nations with different languages. And yet throughout, there's this man named Abraham, or rather after, there's this man named Abraham, first Abram and then Abraham, who receives this promise. And he receives it a number of times. And here in chapter 17, God repeats that promise again. And by reading 17 verses 1 through 8, I think we get some clarity about the promise, the nature of the promise that Paul is referring to here in Romans chapter 9. So here's what it says, Genesis 17 verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So this is the promise which establishes what we may call the old covenant at this point, or at least part of it. And it sets the table for the new covenant that Jesus would inaugurate and ratify with his own blood. So this is the earliest seeds, if you will, of the promise that Paul is talking about in Romans. So based on Genesis chapter 17, what's the nature of God's promise? Well, 
that we may do well and how many have described is there's this core aspect to the promise and then there's these details, right? What's the core aspect of this promise? What, what is the central force of the thing that God is promising? Well, if we look at the bookends of this promise in verses 1 through 8, we see the same thing repeated. So what he begins with is what he ends with, which is really telling for us in a biblical story, gets our attention where he starts and where he ends. So the core promise is bookended by, look at verse 1, how, how it begins. I am God Almighty. This is how he begins his promise. Look how he ends it at the end of verse 8. I will be their what? God. I'd like to suggest to you that the core of God's promise is himself. This ought to destabilize a lot of things about the way we often view God. See, because a lot of the ways that we often view God and what he's promised us is that he's promised us stuff, things, experiences, feelings, right? But God actually, what he's promising is himself. He's promising himself. He's promising himself to his people. He's promising himself to us by God's grace, through his Holy Spirit, through the work of Christ today, right? That's the core of the promise. What are the details? A number of different details, I think, come to light. When you look at verse 7, he says, It's between me and you and your offspring after you to be God to you and to your offspring after you. In other words, God's promise is personal. It's relational, but it's not private, right? We know the difference. It's personal in that there's intimacy to it. it, it act, he actually knows you by name, but it's not just about you. And just me and Jesus, me and God, walking our walk, talking our talk. Nobody can like actually step into my spiritual formation story, right? We're not self-protective as we follow God. Why? Because the promise isn't just for you. It's not just for me. It's personal, but it's not private. We also see something else about God's promise of himself. Verse 8. It's an everlasting covenant. In other words, God's promise is eternal. So we see his promise is personal, not, but not private, and it's eternal. But also he says in verse 6 and 8, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will give it to you, to this everlasting possession. In other words, that God's promise is about human flourishing. It's for our good. It's for our joy. It's for our flourishing. Lastly, and it's intriguing that it begins this way, when we look back at verse 1, Another detail of this promise is that God says, I am God Almighty. And then what do you say? Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant. So God's promises himself, and it's personal, but it's not private. It's eternal. It's for human flourishing, but it also has these conditions to it. Now, as Protestants who love grace, we get real nervous when we start talking about conditions. Now just hold that thought. We'll get there in a minute. But it's very clear here that his covenant, his promise has these conditions. Walk before me and be blameless. So when we answer the question, has God failed? We must be clear about what God has actually vowed, what he's actually promised. And first and foremost, God has promised himself. So when we think about what's Paul thinking when he says about God's promise, he's talking about promising himself, his fidelity to his people. It's relational. It's eternal. It's for the sake of human flourishing, and yet it has these conditions. So now the question is, has God been faithful to that? Has been faithful and true to that promise? So let's bring that framework back to Romans chapter 8. Flip back to Romans. Or, so we take this framework. Now, now, now we know the content to be with the core and the details of the promise. Paul says, Romans 9 verse 9, promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either 
purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She to was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So God promised himself. And Paul is saying this ongoing gift of children, in particular to those who did not expect it, right, through Sarah and through Rebecca, that that's proof that God has not failed this promise. God is still their God. God is still with his people. God is still faithful to fulfill his word. God is keeping his promise. Are you with me? This is what Paul is connecting the dots. He's been faithful to that family. Now he's been faithful to you, his first century Jewish audience. Now, if this is so clear, and this is always a question I have when it comes to the Bible. If this is so clear, like we can go to Genesis and every book of the Bible and see that God has promise. Why isn't, why is it necessary for Paul to put it this way? So if it's so clear, why isn't it clear is really the question. Why does Paul need to take time to repeat and to clarify and to establish that God has not failed? Well, because the Jewish people made God's promise into something else. So he is repeating not because it's not clear. He's repeating because they've done something to this promise. They ignored or changed or wrongly interpreted the nature of his promise. They put words in his mouth. Specifically, many believed and still believe that God promised all of Israel would be saved because of their specialness and because of their ethnicity. Now, don't get overly critical. When we get overly critical of the scriptures, it double backs on us and we get punched in the mouth, right? So don't get critical of the Jewish people because we do the very same thing, don't we? We put words in God's mouth. I'd like to suggest to you that one of the primary reasons we get frustrated with God is because we are waiting for him to fulfill a promise that he never made. One of the reasons that you and I spend much of our week frustrated at God is we're waiting for him to do something that he never said he was going to do. Let me put it to you this way, church, because I love you so much. God has never failed what he has promised, but he regularly fails what you desire. He has never failed what he has promised, but he regularly fails what we desire. God's promised himself. And, and yet, we often misquote him. And like Paul says in Romans chapter 2, is that we presume upon his kindness. We presume upon him. In other words, we begin to interpret his promises for our sake. By the way, we have a word for this, and it's really uncomfortable. It's called entitlement. This is what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 9. Entitlement is the expectation of unmade promises. It's claiming a right to something or someone which you have not been promised. More to the point, entitlement is the belief that you are owed privilege and special treatment. Spiritual entitlement presumes upon the nature of God's promise. And one of the prevalent presumptions, one of the prevalent expressions of spiritual entitlement in the ancient world was that all Jews were entitled to be a part of God's redeemed people forever. So that's the nature of God's promise. It's himself. God has promised himself relationally, eternally, for human flourishing, yet with these conditions. And this is a really brilliant and beautiful promise. So we want to know what it says. We want to know what he has actually promised, because it's better than anything you and I could come up with. And he's not failed in keeping his promise. But to whom has he made this promise? Because this is what Paul is trying to clarify. Not just what he has promised, but to whom he has promised this. Will he only be Israel's God? What about those conditions? 
Will he only be the God of those who walk in obedience and who are blameless? Who's this promise for? Well, I think Paul explains this at the very beginning. So look back at verse 6, Romans chapter 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul goes on to to explain that God selects Isaac and not Ishmael. And then he selects Jacob and not Esau. In fact, the nation of Israel, where it gets its name, is from Jacob, whose name was changed into Israel, and from him the nation comes. See, Paul is explaining something from from the very beginning. The people of the promise have not been all of Abraham's biological descendants. The people of God's promise have always been those whom God has chosen. It's always been that way. It's always been the God who chose Isaac and not Ishmael, who chose Jacob and not Esau. This has always been part of his character. Election is not a New Testament idea, in other words. What we've been learning through Romans chapter 8 and onward, right? Election, predestination, that God God foreknew you and chose you is not a New Testament idea. This is who God has always been. He has always been the God who chooses his family. See, Paul explains it by juxtaposing these two different ideas. Children of the flesh and children of the promise. Do you see it there in 6 through 8? There are two Israels, two families, if you will. There is an ethnic family and there is a spiritual family. And children of the flesh are Jewish or part of this ethnic family. They're not necessarily part of the redeemed family of God or the spiritual family. This is what Paul is trying to articulate. Children of the promise are necessarily part of the redeemed or spiritual family of God, but not necessarily Jewish. So God promises himself, church, relationally, eternally, and for our flourishing only to Abraham's spiritual family. It's the family that God chooses. And notice when and how he chooses his children. Look at verse 11. When they are not yet born, thanks be to God, and before they've done anything good or bad, thanks be to God. This is the idea that Paul highlighted back in Romans chapter 4. Do you remember that? About 15 years ago when we were in Romans chapter 4. This is why it depends on faith, Paul says, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I made you the father of many nations. See, salvation is not a matter of, is, is a matter of God's choice. It's by grace, through faith, not ethnicity or family of origin. So has God failed? No, he's never failed. Why? How could we say that God has not failed if, not all, if, if all ethnic Jews are not saved, a part of the spiritual family of Abraham? How could we say that? Well, because God never promised that. God never promised that all children of the flesh would be children of the promise. God never promised, in other words, that all Jews would be redeemed. In fact, God has never promised any nation that they were special. God has never promised any nation special privilege. No one is entitled to salvation or blessing based upon their ethnicity or their family of origin. That's why in Romans chapter 4, Paul reaches back to Genesis chapter 17 and says, I've made you a father of many nations. This is so critical. Did you notice it is plural, not singular, right? 
Abraham is not the father of a single nation, namely Israel. Abraham is the father of many nations, namely the 200 different nations of this world, namely the 20,000 different people groups who call this planet home. Regretfully, this presumption of special privilege conferred upon, uh, by God rather, upon a single group or nation, it persists, doesn't it? See, we see this in our own time. We see this in our own country. For starters, there is a stream of Christian people, our brothers and sisters, many of whom identify as what's called dispensationalists, right? See a special place for Israel in Christian doctrine, that God still has unique promises that he will fulfill only for and specially for Israel. But I'm not actually very concerned about that, if I can just be so bold. I think what we ought to get more of our attention and more of our concern is with a broader understanding or conflation of faith and country, a more nefarious spiritual entitlement that is in this country. See, a phrase that is becoming more and more popular and prevalent today is white Christian nationalism. Now, if you have heard this discussed on Twitter, please stay with me, okay? Don't bow out because it hurts to hear that. Let's stay, let's stay in this. It's, it's not a new idea, by the way. We're so good at thinking we've come up with stuff and experiencing stuff for the first time. This is not a new idea, but it's getting more airtime now, so I think we ought to address it from the scriptures. And it demands our attention and contemplation because this concept exposes our version and our application of the spiritual entitlement that Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 9. Professor of American Social Thought at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Anitha Butler, explains that white Christian nationalism is the belief that America's founding is based on Christian principles, white Protestant Christianity is the operational religion of the land, and that Christianity should be the foundation of how the nation develops its laws, principles, and policies. In other words, it's an understanding of our past, and it's a conviction about how public life ought to be governed today. It's similar to the Jewish understanding of God in that white Protestantism is esteemed above all other cultures and traditions. It's dissimilar in that white Christian nationalism is often conflated even with politics and social power today. That's, that's kind of a new thought that's very different from the Jewish way of seeing the world. And let's not get it twisted. Both are demonic. Both are evil. Both are lies from the pit of hell that are being adapted and, 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 and transforming, if you will, the church of Jesus Christ today. And it should cause us deep contemplation and lament. See, both are manipulations of God's promise. See, white Americans and their version of Christianity are no more entitled to blessing and redemption than the ethnic Jews Paul was writing to in Romans chapter 9. God has never promised America that it was special. God has never promised America special treatment, privilege, or even purpose, nor any other nation or people. And part of our lament over the brokenness and disparity and our need for rec racial reconciliation today is to name that evil, lament that evil, and ask that God would rid us of that evil. Now, I, I, I just I know that there are impulses to that, so let me just clarify what I'm not saying and what I don't think the scriptures are saying. This doesn't mean we don't love our country, right? This doesn't mean we don't love 
our country. I think some of us have begun to respond to white Christian nationalism by then demeaning our country, demeaning white people, and demeaning Christianity. That's a bad idea. That is a bad idea. It's an over-exaggeration. It's a course correction that leads to the same evils that we are accusing someone else of. The church has got to be better at that. Not just moving with the cultural winds one way or the other. See, we can presume then that, that all white Christians must be racist or nationalists, and this is too far. Or we even demean ourselves. I mean, let, let's just, I mean, white, American, Protestant, trying to talk through this with you, right? So I hope the course correction is let's not hate all people who look and think and act like me, at least ideologically. See, nationalism is about superiority and specialness, but patriotism is about love. As writer C.S. Lewis once put it, he described patriotism as the love of place or home. But he also explained that an appropriate love of home also affords our neighbor the same zeal and dignity to love their home as much as we do. Right? So patriotism is not a zero-sum game. Patriotism is a love of home. Therefore, we rejoice when someone loves their home as much as we do, and it makes perfect sense to us why they would. See, the point is to not stop loving our home or our culture or our faith. The point is to rid ourselves of entitlement. It's to rid ourselves of white supremacy. And you know, the church of Jesus Christ has never existed in the United States without a cover of white supremacy. And so, and so if we are so frustrated, we still got to work through this. The church literally was birthed in the United States underneath the guise of white supremacy. So we should not be surprised that we still have got to fight against that mug and that evil and that lie from the pit of hell. Let's not get uncomfortable that we got to talk about it. Let's defeat it and send it back to hell from whence it came, right? This is what Paul is doing. Don't be entitled. We can't be entitled or believe that we have some license that he does not afford or blessing he does not afford. All people who are part of the promise. God help us. See, what Paul makes unquestionably clear in Romans chapter 9, verse 6 through 13, is that there is no such thing as a Christian nation. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as saved by association. There's no such thing as a favored ethnicity. Rather, there is a people, a group of peoples, who by faith have engrafted it, been engrafted into a single family from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Therefore, we should be a people who work and resist every expression of white supremacy or cultural supremacy or entitlement wherever it shows its ugly mug anywhere in our church family. See, some of us are more uncomfortable about talking about entitlement than entitlement existing. We should be more upset that it exists than that we got to talk about it and it's uncomfortable. We confess and rid ourselves of entitlement. This is where it begins. Just like Paul here works against Jewish supremacy and dismantling any evidence of spiritual entitlement in the early church. He's looking at Jews and he's going, you're not special. So my sister, my brother, I love you. You're not special. Not any more than your neighbor. Not any more than your brother or sister, right? Some of us, that's hard to hear because I grew up with participation ribbons for literally everything I did. I just showed up and people praised me, right? Got an award. And so what the scriptures are saying is like, that's, that, that, that's not real. That's not a thing. It's not a thing. 
See, because the work of salvation and the work of purification of God's family, it, it does something. Something is going on in this, that the nature and people uh, demonstrate God's eternal purpose for his promise. So the nature of God's promise is himself, and the people of God's promise are those whom God has chosen. Now, what's the purpose? The purpose of God's promise. Why has he alleged himself to us in this way? Why even this, this promise and keeping promise project? Because, you know, he could have constructed it any way that he wanted to. And the way that he constructed it was, I'm going to make an eternal promise and I'm going to keep it. Why does he do that? Paul explains in verse 11. Though they were not yet born, that had, uh, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So remember that offspring that proved God's faithfulness has not yet been born. That means what Paul says is they hadn't had a chance yet to do anything good or bad. They hadn't had a chance yet to see if they're special or not, right? In other words, they were not entitled to salvation by pedigree nor by performance. They had no claim on righteousness by birth. Or by merit. In other words, the purpose of salvation was not about them. It's not about you. This is the thing we've got to daily combat with in our broken hearts. This is what Paul is zeroing us in on. The purpose of salvation could not be their own glory. Instead, Paul says their salvation and the salvation of anyone and everyone. The purpose of election is to reveal and venerate the one who called you. Because if you and I got selected before we were born, we're not that impressive, but the one who chose me really is. He's amazing. This, that's it. The purpose of the promise is to reveal the glory of God. Now, this is where those conditions come back in, and it's so critical we understand them. See, because it was clear in Abraham's story, if you remember it from Genesis chapter 22, he was asked to sacrifice his son, but a ram was given as a substitute so that Isaac would not have to die. The promise would be kept, but somebody did die. Someone did die. Something did die. A ram. A substitute was given. In the same way, Jesus is given for us, right? See, God's ultimately in, in Genesis chapter 17, we see this promise, this thing with the conditions, right? that walk before me and be blameless, that, that I may make my covenant. God's covenant demands holiness. But let's think about this. Abraham did not walk blamelessly. Isaac, Jacob did not walk blamelessly. Sarah, Rebecca did not walk blamelessly. Israel, the whole nation did not walk blamelessly. You don't walk blamelessly. I don't walk blamelessly. Therefore, in order for God's promise to be fulfilled, we needed a substitute. In order for his, his word to not fail, for someone to walk blamelessly, we needed someone to come and walk on our behalf, to live on our behalf, to die on our behalf, to be blameless and holy and righteous. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down, church? We needed a substitute. And this is the heartbeat of the Bible. From Genesis chapter 22, all the way through the cross, what we are given is the story of substitution. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He dies my death, I receive his righteousness. He takes on my sin, I'm given his holiness. Venerates him, 
See, Jesus took the blame and punishment for our sin, and then therefore Jesus' blameless walk then becomes credited to us. The pedigree, the performance, and in some measure the glory of Christ gets bestowed on those whom God has chosen. And so since Jesus walked blamelessly before God, the nature of God's promise has been fulfilled. We have God. God. God is among us. He is in us. He is with us. The people of the promise are conferred by faith in Jesus. The church is a chosen people, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, all kinds of different people kind of family. And the purpose of the promise is realized. In that, God gets all the glory. You didn't have a chance to mess it up. I didn't have a chance to get credit. None of us did. Praise God. Praise God we didn't have a chance. So has God failed, church? No. God never fails. He has given himself to his people forever in the person of Jesus Christ. Has God failed? No. God never fails. His chosen people are secure. Sister, you are secure. Brother, you are secure in the righteousness of Christ relationally and for your flourishing. Has God failed? No. God never fails. He has met all of the conditions in Christ who was blameless, righteous, who was tempted yet with sin. Therefore, our redemption reveals his glory each and every day and on into eternity. Has God failed? No. God never fails. Let's pray. Father, help us. Humble us. Save us. Forgive us. I need to hear the simple and clear truth repeated because daily I presume upon your kindness. I put words in your mouth and I'm waiting for you to fulfill promises you never made. Meanwhile, you have fulfilled the greatest promise ever spoken. So help my sisters, help my brothers, help us as a church family to be centered on the true promise that you have made. Help us as a people presume no entitlement and special privilege to the cross, but know that we were elected, saved before we were born, before we did good or bad. So ultimately, it doesn't reveal our glory, it reveals the glory of our brilliant, loving, faithful, powerful Savior. So it's Him we worship, it's Him we adore, and it's you we thank in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.